Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Our sermon text this morning is again Romans 7, 1 to 6. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Just a second, please. Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman, or as we learned a couple weeks ago, the woman under a husband, literally, is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then... If while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. So that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. This is the word of the Lord. So now we're back in Romans 7, 1 to 6 for a second week. Stephen made some cynical comments in the Sunday school class about when we would get to chapter 8. I don't think he knew I was here, but I think, I'm, I think we're doing relatively well, actually, with Romans. You know, this is only 37, you know, so don't complain. So here we have gone over the first half of our text, and we see that in this passage of Romans that the Apostle Paul is using the bond of marriage to illustrate the Christian's relationship to the law. So if while her husband is living, etc. If you follow the Apostle Paul's argument, what you see is that when the husband dies, all things are new. After his death, things are entirely different. Why? Well, because death frees us from the law. Now, there's a very important point to make here, a point that, has, uh, that I have missed until now. And that is, it's not that the law dies, it's that we die to the law. And, and, and that's a very important distinction. The Bible does not in Romans or in Galatians ever say that the law dies. What the Bible says is that we die to the law. We die to sin, we die to the law. And that's a very different thing from the law dying. It is true that those of us who are lazy Christians and ashamed of the gospel are constantly trying to tell people that the law is dead. We're constantly trying to like put the law in a straight jacket and suppress it and minimize it and everything we can do to make the law less, to have it lighter. And so it makes sense that we would think that the law has died because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make the law sort of a private Christian thingamabobby, you know, something that that those of us who are in the cognoscenti, the, the, the people in the know, the people with the Gnostic truth, the people who have actually been uh, brought into the secret Christian, you know, those of us who are Christians, we see the law. But when we look around and we see worldlings, pagans, people who are in rebellion against God, We're always trying to minimize that rebellion. We're always trying to say where that rebellion actually has good motivation, where, well, of course they don't understand it. They're not Christians. It's not until they're Christians that they can understand the spiritual nature of the law. And then people come to us and they confess sin. We say, oh, it's grace covers it. So even the people of God today 
are often thinking that the law has died and now grace reigns supreme, and not limiting that to the life of the Christian, but spreading it willy-nilly everywhere we can, just spreading that. It is not that the law has died, but that the Christian, the Christian, has died to the law. Okay? Therefore, my brethren, verse 4, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. So, as death frees the wife from the law of marriage, so death frees the Christian from God's law. Now, what is that death? Well, it is the death of Jesus Christ. That became our death through faith in his death and resurrection. Every Christian is baptized into Christ's death and raised into newness of life. And central to that newness of life is freedom from God's law. But that freedom from God's law comes from being what? Joined to another. And honestly, if you look at it for what it is, being joined to another sounds legalistic. I mean, what did we witness at the wedding? Vows. What do vows do? Vows join. Vows constrain. Vows should be, well, it's symbolized by a ring. We died to the law so that we might be joined to another. The freedom of the wife to be joined to another man after her husband's death is similar to the freedom from the law the Christian receives by being united to another, which is Jesus Christ, who is Jesus Christ. Now you see it. The Apostle Paul states that just like the wife of the husband who died, you also were made to die to the law. Now, how is the Christian made to die to the law? And again, notice I didn't say, how is it that the law dies? I said, how is the Christian made to die to the law? This happens through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I, as believers, died with him. We died. We died through him. In him, we died. In him, we were dead and buried. That's the symbolism of baptism that Baptists are so, so zealous to protect. That you die to this world and to sin, and what? You're buried in the water. And then you're raised to newness of life. I I know that a lot of you think I'm wacko for, for waxing, as Max says, waxing elephant on the issue of the Christian commitment to burial but it's at the center of our faith. It's baptism. Baptism is burial. Christians have always buried. And so we were dying with him. We died through him. In him we died. In him we were dead and buried. We were baptized into his death. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. This is our union with Christ, spoken of by the Apostle Paul in Romans also. Therefore, my brother, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. If we look back at chapter 6, we see the same theme of dying so that we may be united with Christ in righteousness. In chapter 6, it's not that the believer has died to the law, it's that the believer has died to sin. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Verse 1, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who what? Who died to sin shall live in it? Romans 6, 17 and 18, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, 
you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I often uh, remind us, remind you, remind myself, there are only two conditions of life. And one is a slave of sin and a slave of Satan, and the other is a slave of Jesus Christ. And don't, don't, don't trim the edge off the word slave. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. You're either under the authority of Satan or you're the, under the authority of Jesus Christ. And there is no demilitarized zone. There, there's no place to stand in the middle and hedge your bets. Those are the two positions. It's all in or what? All out. And so it talks about slaves of righteousness. And then here in chapter 7, verse 4, My brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. But now, verse 6, we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. And so in chapter 6, he's died to his master's sin, and now he's a slave of righteousness. Chapter 7, he's been released from the law, he's died to the law, and he's now joined to Jesus Christ that he may bear fruit from God. Okay? That's chapter 6 in chapter 7. Died to sin, slave of Jesus Christ, died to the law, united to Christ, and producing fruit for him. And in both chapter 6 and 7, the purpose of this death and our resultant freedom in Christ is sanctification, which is producing fruit for God. Listen. Well, let me read it. Chapter, uh, chapter 7. So that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. This is the reason for the entire gospel, is so that we will bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for, de- for death. Okay, again, those are the two positions. We're bearing fruit for death, we're bearing fruit for God. There is no DMZ. There is no place in the middle in between bearing fruit for death and bearing fruit for God. You're, you know, you just love it when unbelievers, worldlings, and pagans are honest. Right? You just love it. I won't listen to Imagine, you know, by Lennon. I I refuse. I'll leave a store, I'll turn it off, I'll do whatever I can, because it's such a lie, you know. Imagine I'm not going to get shot and die. Wouldn't that be a wonderful world? It doesn't exist. Lennon's world is very seductive, it doesn't exist, but I love the song, We're on a Highway to Hell. And why? Why? Because it's honest. Can we please have a little honesty? And man, the guy that sings, I'm on a highway to hell, that's a man who is very open to evangelism. Now, I'm going to keep going on this theme, but let's move on. The relationship of man, and man, when I use it, refers to men and women together, the relationship of man to the law of God is no simple matter. Remember, I, I mentioned this earlier about our tendency to try to squelch and minimize and make it thin and t- make it way less, okay? The relationship of man to the law is no simple matter. God requires us to obey his law. And guess what? It doesn't matter if you like that or not because he made you. He made the universe. He made everything that exists, God made, and all of creation exists to give him glory. And the way we give him glory is we conform ourselves to his character and perfections. That's how we do it. How do you conform yourself to God's character and perfections? The way you do it is by obeying his law. And so his law is written in the hearts, you know, Lewis uh, talks about the Tao. Romans 1 talks about they knew, you know, but refused to give him glory. 
And so the, the, the law that condemns us as lawbreakers is known to everyone, whether or not they're in a Christian society, whether they've read the Bible, all nature sings of his glory. And so the man that refuses to give God glory and has never seen a Bible and never heard the name Jesus Christ is just as evil as the man who was raised within Christendom and had Christian radio or (laughs) whatever. All right. And so when we come to God commanding us to obey his law, he's not doing anything that's unjust, unfair. It doesn't matter if you think he's fair. You exist to give him glory, and he has commanded you to obey his law. Okay? God is our creator, and therefore we exist to do what he's made us to do, which is to worship him. How do we worship him? We worship him by obeying his law. Now, for instance, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. These are laws of God from the Ten Commandments. God requires our obedience to his law. But God requires our obedience to his law to be inward and not simply outward. To be internal and not simply external. In other words, God doesn't just take outward conformity and say, you know, ollie ollie and free. God says, what's going on in your heart is you supposedly obey my law. And so, for instance, God says that you shall not murder. But then Jesus, interpreting that law, says, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. This is in Matthew 5. Verse 22 says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Well, I mean, honestly? I thought I was doing pretty good not aborting my child. You mean to tell me that I'm not even supposed to be angry that I'm pregnant? How does Jesus interpret that same thing in the context of the commandment, thou shalt not kill. You know? I mean, that's unrealistic. Who could keep that? What mother has not had feelings of ambivalence towards the little one in her womb? I mean, let's be honest here. And the Bible says that Jesus interpreted the law that you shall not murder by saying to you that you shall not be angry. Think of how many of you have murdered your husband in your marriage. I mean, there are women married to men in this church who have never stopped murdering their husband. I've counseled them. And by the way, if you think Mary Lou was murdering me during the sermon last Sunday, I mean, honestly, she never stops correcting me. And it's a wonderful marriage. And I'm not being sarcastic at all. What a wonderful wife. But some of you are not wonderful wives and some of you are not wonderful husbands. You are angry. Some of you children, oh, 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 oh. (laughs) you never stop being angry against. (laughs) Remember what Steve Martin says? He decided when he turned 16 that he was going to officially stop recognizing his father. He'd walk into a, his dad would walk into a room, he was there, he'd get up and leave. Think of the intense anger that Steve Martin had against his father to motivate him to spend years refusing to acknowledge his father's existence while he lived in the same home with him. Awful lot of you children, many of you are, are adults, and you think that you've done well by never hitting or never cursing your father. And yet you hate him, you're angry at him. God says that we are to obey his law, and he says that we are to obey his law in our hearts. But it doesn't stop there. It then goes on and says we have to have the right motivation for obeying his law in our hearts. It really does matter what your motivation is for obeying his law. For instance, in the New Testament, it says that the man that doesn't provide it for his own is worse than a pagan, right? We all know that. And so many men make a big show of providing for the family, right? I mean, the world is filled with self-righteous men because they simply get up and work and go home and give the, the paycheck to the wife. But the Bible says 
that the man who works should work what? What is his motivation? It actually says that he should work so that he has something to share with the needy. You haven't begun to obey God's law to not steal until your motivation is that you have money to put in the deacon's offering. Do you understand this? God's laws are deep and heavy. They're not light. They're not external, but they're also internal. And then you have motivation. But at this point, we're talking about laws that are, you shall not kill, you shall not steal. All right. Now let's move over to the fact that it says that to him who knoweth to do right and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And so now we move away from the things that are proscribed, the things that are denied you, the things that we're told not to do, prohibitions. Now we're moving to positive commands. And if you think this aspect of the law is heavy, when you get done seeing that it's not just external, but also internal, and also the motivations matter, then move to this side, and you see that you have a whole host of positive laws that are absolutely exhausting. Think of all the things in your life that you know you should do, and you do it not. And you never feel the weight of violating the holiness of God in the things you don't do that you know are right, as you do the things you do do that you know you shouldn't. And then you think about the fact that the things that you should do, you have to do for the right motivation. You have to do them from your heart. (laughs) You You can't just have people over who aren't a part of our circle, our clique, because one of them is the, you know, one of the people you had over was the pastor, and he'll notice that you have other people at the table who can't reciprocate, you know? You know how even our positive things, what we'll do is do them in such a way that other people will notice us doing those positive things. You know, do not trivialize the law of God. Do not trivialize how devious you are in your sin. Don't trivialize the holiness of God. Don't trivialize how impossible it is to meet the standard of the law of God. And then, when it comes to doing the things that we ought to do, all right, we hit a command that absolutely makes any sane man give in, and that's Ephesians 5. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead instead, expose them. And so even on the negative side, it's not enough for us to avoid sexual perversion and abortion, right? But we have to expose it. And he goes on and he says... Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Instead, rather expose them for, this is why you're to expose them, for it is disgraceful, which means shameful, even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. You are the light of the world. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Expose them. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Now, at this point, all of us should say uncle. Because it's so clear. Who among us has the faith and the love for God to expose the evils that are around us? None of us do. There are a few people... And, you know, typically the people that have faith to expose the evil of the world, and and by the way, I'm not talking about culture warriors, you know, people that are online always saying negative things about homosexuality and stuff like that. Uh, To me, that's cheap, okay? Although, not to be underrated. But the real people who expose evil are the ones that do it personally. They're the ones that love their friend and so explain to their friend, no, I'm not going to come to your lesbian wedding. No, I'm not going to give to United Way. Uh Uh-uh. They support Planned Parenthood. You know, these personal conversations are where God most is glorified by us exposing evil. 
Because they're motivated by what? Because they're motivated by our love. You know, if you spend your life trying to trivialize your sin and your failure to do what you know is right, you spend your life that way, how do you think you're going to react to people around you, the people that you work with, the people that you study with, the people that teach you, your teachers, your professors, the administrators? Well, if you, you're a moralist and you're always trying to minimize God's law and God's holiness and make yourself look good, you're never going to talk to anybody. Because talking to people requires you to scrutinize their heart and their motivation. You can't get through to somebody if you're not willing to deal with their heart, right? I mean, that's the thing that so many people coming in this church hate about my preaching. You know, I've, I, what is going on here? You know, I've never heard a preacher preach like that before. Remember that, that uh, freshman woman that was sitting in the second row here one Sunday? You know, and I was preaching and, excuse me, <laughs> you remember this? Puts her hand up and she says, you're preaching your words. You're not preaching the Bible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was quite interesting. <laughs> Listen, we have to be motivated to love people. Moralists never love people. They love rules because they're convinced they keep them. Do you all understand this? And if you're a moralist, trust me, you don't keep God's law. Okay? That's the whole point of Romans 1 and 2. The hinge point is, well, what about you? So you're not committing homosexuality. Are you an idolater? Are you a thief? Do you commit adultery? I mean, the Apostle Paul is both stinging like a bee and stinging like a bee. All through the book of Romans. And so when we see this statement here about dying to the law, I, well, I almost despair about preaching this to Christians today because Christians have such a trivial view of our violation of the law of God. We're such, such eager beavers to jump onto the grace of God and be done with the law. But you can't be done with the law until you have died to the law. You cannot be done with the law until you have died to the law. And the way you die to the law is you despair of your own goodness. You embrace the law. And the law, as you embrace it, does what? It awakens the law in you. It causes more sinful passions. It just like does the opposite of what you're wanting it to do. This is the gospel. The law is a schoolmaster to Christ. And Christians are so eager to try to minimize the law and take weight off the law and squelch it and superficialize it, if I can say it, you know. We're so eager to make the law as little in unbelievers' lives as it is in our life. And that's the reason there's no evangelism, no true evangelism today. You ever noticed... Those of you who are old enough, <laughs> how, the, how the thrust of Christendom in the United States of America has turned, and it's completely turned away from evangelism to church growth. You know? Just bring them in, and then they'll get saved. Well, that can happen. But you have to die to the law. And dying to the law is an extremely painful process. It's so painful. And you know, this is not a surprise to God. He intended it this way.
and it extends to motivation, and whatever is not of faith is sin. Verse 5, for while we are in the flesh, while we are in the flesh, it's a condition of everyone who is not a believer, while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were what? Aroused by the law. You hear all the discussion of passion today. And I think the majority of it is sinful passion. I don't know how anybody understands the news page of Google News, for instance, without having this truth in your mind and heart that sinful passions are aroused by the law. You take all the passions that are spoken of on the Google News page. You take the passions that are demonstrated in Washington, D.C. You take the passions of Revoice and of the LGBTQ movement. Take those passions. They are passions. And say to yourself, are these passions aroused by the law? And the answer is so clearly yes. The only way you can possibly explain the militancy of sexual perversion in in the Western world today is a hatred for God and for his law. The passions inside of us when we repudiate God's authority are a terrible thing to see. And we see them in ourselves. We have all seen in ourselves our refusal to submit to God. Right? Our refusal to depend on him for our righteousness. We're all moralists. And so all of us have had these situations where, you know, we try to do what is right. And we fail. And then we blame God that we fail. We try to do what is right. We fail. We pray and ask God to help us do what is right. And then we fail. And we blame God. We cry, we plead with God, and then we fail and we blame God. And that is the entire explanation of the LGBTQ movement, especially among those who who were raised in Christian homes and churches. You'll hear again and again as you talk to people who are militant, sexual perverts, you'll hear again and again from them, despair, after asking God to change them, and then bitterness and anger against God that has caused them to shout their wickedness, to come out of the closet, to repudiate shame, and to demand that the world accept them the way they are, and God is the one that made them that way, and he didn't change them. And so now they're whole hog into the very thing which God gave to them as a shame to drive them to him. Come on, can't we please be honest about the world we live in? And you'll see this everywhere. You'll see how a greedy man uses the law to justify his greed. William Law saw this in a serious call to a devout and holy life back centuries ago in the 1600s, where he talks about how often men who are greedy will make a big deal out of how they're being faithful to work and providing for their own. And of course, their motivation is greed. And then when other people are poor, they get angry at them and act, you know, think of the the Irish potato famine, you know, where England continued to import from Ireland as the Irish died, as they starved. And of course, the argument is what? Well, the argument is that if people are irresponsible with the money that God has given them, then it would be wrong. And and, and listen, you read the history of economics? (laughs) This is absolutely central in the history of of the creation of the discipline of economics. So much of the beginning of economics had to do with 
And what was it called? Political economy at the time. And so much of it has to do with the question of whether or not a government should help the poor. And the reason is, well, if you help the poor, you're simply encouraging the very behavior that causes poverty. Do you see this? And so throughout history, today, you have moralists who are trying to lower the holiness of God, who are trying to minimize the wickedness of their own hearts, and refuse to do what? They refuse to die to the law. They refuse to learn what the schoolmaster of the law is teaching them, which is it is hopeless. You cannot keep the law because as you try to keep the law, it will simply uh, explode in you sinful passions, cause you to see more laws you're breaking, and despair more. And that's the point at which you're open to the gospel. Because right then, you hear the gospel, and not from some Kellerite who's minimizing You know, but the straight gospel, yes, you are as wicked as you despair to think you are. And that is the reason that you have to have the righteousness of Christ. And you have to have blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Christian faith is pretty radical. And listen, in the book of Romans, you see this theme over and over again. You see the theme of the fact that the law creates despair because the law explodes sinfulness, explodes sinful passions. Later in chapter 7, we're going to come to it in the next few weeks, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Sin produced in me coveting of every kind. When the commandment came, verse 9, sin became alive and I died. Verse 10, this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me for sin. Taking an opportunity, verse 11, through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. (laughs) Do you allow your loved ones and your neighbors and everybody you know to have the law of God kill them? Do you allow them to see through the law that they are hopeless. And that that's God's point. It's the point of the law. That sin will increase. That's why the law is given. And yet as Christians, we have no faith for the law. We try to circumvent that entire process The law is our schoolmaster to Jesus. Leads us like a crossing guard to the cross. The law is intended to kill you. You are intended to die to the law so that you then will live to Jesus Christ. And you'll just despair of your self-righteousness finally, once and for all. (laughs) You know? It's hopeless. Romans 3.20 Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 5.20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Any slightest departure, slightest deviation from smallest part of the law is eternally damnable. James 2 For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of it all. And this is the reason that Romans says to us, there is none righteous, not one. You look at your neighbor, and his pickup truck is always shiny. Okay? And you look at his treatment of his wife, and he always has equanimity, which is a word that I don't understand. (laughs) You know? He never seems to be irritated at anything. And he doesn't go to church. (laughs) 
And so you believe the law. You believe that there is one righteous. He's your next door neighbor. And so you just shut your mouth. And you try not to think jealous and envious thoughts. And you leave him alone because he's morally superior to you. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You are a child of God. You have died to the law. You have been buried in the death of Christ. And now you live, the life you live, you live to the glory of your Redeemer. And you're going to tell me your next door neighbor is good? You know why you say that to yourself? You say that because you don't want to have to add to his suffering. You want a good reputation with your neighbor, and so you do this little thing in your brain about how your neighbor is actually good without Jesus. And you don't want to ruin the good thing he has. (laughs) You know? This is so pathetic, what we do to avoid loving people. Don't fool yourself. You don't love your neighbor. Come on, be honest. You just don't love them. We're all just Rodney King, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> the high point of American ethical behavior to, today is what? Can't we all just get along? Remember Rodney King said that? Can't we all just get Alan Bloom, the writer of The Closing the American Mind, he says that's the only value left in America today. Can't we all just get along? You know, Michelle Obama the other day says she thinks that diversity is a good thing. What on earth is diversity? And how on earth did it ever come to have any moral pretensions? <laughs> you know, it's like you're a Baptist, I'm Presbyterian. That's, that's what makes America great. You know, you're a woman, I'm a man. Diversity. But don't be too womany. And I shouldn't be too manny. <laughs> and you're one year older. And, and I'm younger than you are. And that's diversity. And I just, you know. And you're a lesbian and I'm cis, you know. And woo, you know. And listen, this is exactly what Alan Bloom, who himself was a homosexual philosopher, and he despises the fact that the only value left is our diversity. Can't we all get along? And we, we as Christians refuse to testify to the holiness of God. And listen, every single one of you can testify to the holiness of God. Because as we get further on in, 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 in Romans 7, we're going to see that the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. Who's going to save me from the body of death? I mean, we have a lot to testify about what it means to have the holiness of God in our heart and to strive for it. It's not that you and I lack any awareness of the weight of the law of God. Don't you ever jump over chapter 7 and go to Romans 8. You don't get Romans 8 if you haven't gone through Romans 7. Okay? I want to end by reading you something. Uh, There's a guy that wrote a commentary on Romans I don't normally read him in preparation for preaching, but I did this week. He's a Brit. Uh, His name is uh, Cranfield. I think he taught at the University of Durham. Anyhow, listen to what he says here. Because the final verse is this. He says, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in in verse 6, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound... 
so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So he's doing a riff on the distinction concerning the law of the letter of the law and the spirit. And this is what he writes. He says, the believer's service is characterized. In other words, the life of a believer, the obedience of a believer, the believer's living in union with Christ. The believer's service is characterized not, all right, this is, this is what a believer isn't. It's characterized not by the lifeless effeteness of the mere letter. The believer's obedience of God is not characterized by the unbeliever's effort to keep the law. It's not lifeless and effete. You know, this commentary was probably written 40, 50 years ago, back when the word effeminate was still in use. And what he's saying is, the believer's obedience of God is not the light, superficial, uh, precious, effeminate, effete keeping of the law that is characteristic of what? of the moralist, of the legalist. This is what unbelievers are. Unbelievers multiply laws that God has never made, and they're very particular about you keeping those laws, and that's how they sign their goodness in their lives. Are you with me? And he says, no, that's not how believers obey God and live for God. He says it's not by the light the lifeless effeteness of the mere letter, which is what the legalist is left with by his misunderstanding and misuse of the law. And so all of the moralism's view of the law is effete. It's effete. It's effete. You say, well, I don't know what the word effete means. All right. The word effete means actually uh, over-refined, ineffectual, sterile, effeminate of a weak sort. Lacking virility, lacking weight, lacking glory. The law of God is heavy. It is impossible to keep it. And if you don't want to keep God's law and you hold him accountable because of your perversions, then you manufacture a whole set of laws that allows you to make a big show of your moralism. And everybody will take their eye off the ball. You know, it's when... Hannah was a little girl sitting at the table and she has a cookie and I want the cookie, I would say, look at the birdie! Inevitably, Hannah would look at the birdie and her cookie would be gone. And that's the world when it comes to the holiness of God. The world is perpetually sending out signals, look at the birdie, look at the birdie, look at the birdie. You narrow it down to the holiness of God and to the inward disposition. And to the motivation. And you're no longer a legalist or a moralist. You've now become a lover. Because the only solution is Jesus Christ. And that's who we are as Christians. There's nobody else to go to. Peter was right. Jesus says, are you two going to leave me? And we say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I have to say, I think that's the most precious statement in all of Scripture to me. You know, it's the faith of an idiot. You're going to leave me too? Lord, you're, you're wonderful, and you're the king of the universe, and your father sent you, and, and I read the Old Testament, and it says he was despised among... Bah, 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 bah. No, not, not Peter. Lord... You're going to leave me too? (laughs) Well, you should have shut up about eating your body and drinking your blood. I mean, honestly, you know. That's what had just happened before. And that's when everybody left him. Well, you're going to leave me too? And Peter's like, uh, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Peter's like, so profound. Lord, to whom else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life.
Listen, we, we, we absolutely must not, if the elders would come, we must not trivialize the law of God. We absolutely must not do that. Making the law of God weighty, giving it its full despair that it calls for, is not to engage in a culture war. It has nothing to do with a culture war. It is the gospel. It is the gospel. If you think you keep the law of God and you think that you have a right to tell your wife what's wrong with her, you're an idiot. The moralist is a fool. He doesn't love, but he's also a fool because he has no heavy thoughts of God. He has no heavy thoughts of his own sinfulness. And I've noticed through my life, the older I get, the more I'm aware of my sinfulness. Any of the rest of you? I mean, we don't get lighter thoughts of our sinfulness. I hate to say that to you. <laughs> Those of you just starting, it's pretty depressing to hear me say that. But on the other hand, you don't worship as well as I do. You get that, right? Because why? Because worship comes from zeal and gratitude. And where does zeal and gratitude come from? Oh, man. It is the only possible way to escape shooting yourself. Does this make sense to you? I remember running cross-country. And how do you keep yourself running in cross-country? Well, I had to sing. And I didn't sing Yellow Submarine. I sang hymns. And, you know, the one that has always helped me most in difficulty is a really stupid one. I've told you before, do you remember? (laughs) It is really stupid. The joy of the Lord is my strength. 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 It's stupid. But the words are profound. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And so worship is what kills everything evil in us. And so don't be afraid of discovering the bondage that you have now to Jesus Christ and how weak in that bondage you will be producing holiness. Don't get discouraged about that. Just worship. Give yourself to worship. And the older you get, the more you'll have to worship our Lord Jesus Christ for.